All right. Hey, good morning. This has been a great morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. We are cruising through summer, aren't we? I believe we're halfway through July. We are cruising through summer. Uh, And we're cruising through our series in Exodus. But before we get there, how about a few announcements? There's always a few announcements. Uh, The first one for you kids... So during the summer, we do something special for 7 through 12-year-olds. They're in the service, and uh, we normally do uh, like a kid's question or something like that. I've already got the prize up here. I'm going to let you know, kids, the question will be at the very end after we sing again. So I'm not going to forget it. It's going to be at the end. So you can be listening this morning uh, for a question about the sermon. Uh, This last week, we had the opportunity as a church family to host a couple families in our community that are struggling with homelessness, so right here in our building. And there are a number of you that helped out, and so why don't we just give a round of applause for generically for anyone who is involved in that. Super awesome. And a a special shout out to Scott and Kathy Elder for really taking the point and leading us in this opportunity. Thank you, guys. Uh, Another uh, brief announcement, just uh, one back here. I want to let you know that back here next to the Some of You Kids sign, we have an area, uh, a resource area, and we have a number of great books there that line up with our vision and values. And in case if you're wondering what's back there, there's some really great resources, and uh, you're looking for a good book, you can grab one there. There's a suggested donation. I think it's about $7 per book, but if that's uh, challenging for you. You can even just take one for free. So that's there all the time. I just thought I'd point it out. And last one, last announcement. Next week, there will not be a church service right here because a number of us are going to be in Alamosa, Colorado for a uh, gathering with our um, group of churches. And so we are not going to have a service here. And I know that's easy to hear that. And then it just to kind of go like this. And then next Sunday, you'll be like, wait, there's not a service? So I want you to tell your neighbor, no service here next week. Go ahead, look at your neighbor. Good. Awesome. Hopefully that will sink in a little bit more. Well, let me catch you up to speed where we're at. We're in this series right now called It Is Written, and we're exploring the role of the law, specifically in the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy. So far, we've just been in Exodus, and the last two weeks, we took a bit of a um, sidebar and talked about what role does the Old Testament law, or specifically the Mosaic law, have to do with today. So we talked about the role that it had for those people, what does it mean for us today, Those were excellent sermons. If you didn't watch them, I encourage you to watch them. And now we're picking up the story of where we were at a few weeks ago. We are at Mount Sinai right now to catch you up to speed. God is inviting his people who've come out of the Exodus into a covenant with him, a special covenant, a special relationship. And uh, interestingly, this will be pertinent for today, uh, a number of the things that he does mimic what a marriage covenant looked like during that time. A number of clues I won't have time to get into. 
And he's invited them into that, and he's got a special plan for them. He wants them to be an exclusive people, a chosen people, a special people. And he has a role for them, that they'd be a kingdom of priests. They would show what God is like to all the nations on the earth. So God shows up in fiery glory on top of Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up, and God's presence is there. This might be a helpful clue today. God's presence means more than access to his heart, but today I want to really emphasize the importance of this aspect. So God's presence shows up on top of the mountain. Moses goes up. He's receiving the covenant. He's receiving the tablets. And while he's gone, something goes amuck. The people have made an idol and are worshiping it as if it's the God that rescued them. And furthermore, they engage in some gross sexual sin. God, God warns Moses what happens, and Moses comes down. He takes the two tablets of the covenant, and he breaks them, both displaying his anger and displaying symbolically that the covenant was broken. The people had already messed up before it had even gotten off the ground. And with this anger, this broken covenant, we're left wondering... Like a dramatic love story, will the covenant love story continue between God and his people? Will this unfaithfulness result in a breakup? Will they come back to him, or is his heart and his presence off limits? That's kind of where we're, that kind of cues where we're at today, and we're going to especially focus on the importance of God's presence. This is what I think after I studied the passage I think that all of us here listening, including me, we all grossly underestimate the blessing of God's presence. And so we're going to see that today Moses is going to give a number of intercessions to try to get these people back to God, Um, but it's also going to foreshadow some really cool things in the new covenant. So that's where we're going today. We're going to need God's help, so let's pray. And then I'm going to have you grab the Bible in front of you, and we're going to take a journey at Mount Sinai. Pray with me. God, how awesome it is to have access to your heart, to your presence. Right now, we just come, and we want to see you more. We want to be more in love with God. We want to walk out of here more grateful for your presence with you as the treasure of our hearts, more than anything else we're going to do today or anything else that we have on our minds, that you would be supreme over all. Help us, even though we're familiar, some of us with this, help us to see it freshly, help it to hit our hearts, help us to walk away hungry and thirsty for more of God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are going to read various sections of Exodus 33 and 34. I want you to grab the Bible in front of you. It's on page 73. We're not going to read every single verse, but we're going to kind of take it in bite-sized chunks here, the first one being our longest chunk. Here you go. Page 73. I'll begin reading in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, 
Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb, that's Sinai, onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside camp, far from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each one would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he got into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And that's where we'll take a pause in the middle of the passage. Let's work backwards in order for what we just read. Maybe specifically um, talking about what was going on with this tent. So we're hearing about what was happening during a specific period of time from Exodus 33 to Exodus 39. When there wasn't such thing as the tabernacle, the tabernacle was a tent that they were going to build, that's where God was going to meet them. But this was a, we could call it a prototype tent before the tabernacle. After the sin of idolatry, before the tabernacle was built, Moses had this own tent. He called it the tent of meeting, which confusingly, sometimes the tabernacle is called the tent of meeting. But anyway, it's a tent. It's outside of camp. And this is where Moses meets with God between Exodus 33 and 39. And what's significant about it, God would show up there, and it says that Moses would speak to God face-to-face as a man speaks with his friend. Notice, it doesn't say that Moses saw God's face, but the way that he spoke to him was they spoke to him face-to-face like a man speaks with a friend. So the level of relational depth was very significant. The communication was direct. It was a friendship of sorts. And so Moses had direct communication, perhaps like no one had since Adam and Eve in the garden before sin. Super amazing. Then the process, there's a really somber moment. Moses walks out and everyone kind of stands at attention at their tent as they watch Moses. Everybody's watching. Every eye is on him as he is going to go into the presence of God. And they worship and Moses gets to talk to them. And the word from God is that they all need to strip themselves of their ornaments, which probably was an indication or related to, perhaps to idolatry. 
Either way, they take it off. It's a sign of mourning. They recognize, man, we have so blown it. We have really done bad. It's like putting dust and ash cloth, you know, ashes on themselves. They're just saying, we've really blown it. And then God gives the shocking news. He drops the bomb. I'm not going with you anymore. We're done. We're not a thing anymore. The dream is over. The covenant love story stops here. And that cues us up to see how Moses responds in verse 12. We can continue on and right where you're at in the Bible. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, consider too, um, show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And the Lord said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to the Lord, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? And is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. All right, so after God drops the bomb, Moses starts interceding. Moses is a key picture for us of an intercessor before God. And in fact, in Exodus, he intercedes before God five times. In this passage, we're going to see three of them, but there are actually two that occurred right before here, which I think will be helpful for understanding for context. I borrowed an image from the Bible project, but I put my own words in here to kind of make it easy to understand when cartoon format, all right? So we're going to go back in time. We are on top of the mountain when God says the people just made a golden calf and they're worshiping it. And this is how the dialogue goes. The Lord, Yahweh, says, these are stiff-necked people. My anger burns against them, so I am done with them. I'm starting over, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And Moses says, why does your anger burn against them? You rescued them from Egypt. What will the Egyptians say? They might think that you're evil for bringing them out here and killing them. You should turn from your anger. You should relent. And he reminds God of his promise. Remember, you gave a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, a promise that God would give them uh, descendants as numerous as the stars. So remember that promise, God. And so God relents. Hundreds of thousands of people are spared, while 3,000 are killed for their grievous sexual sin. Moses then tells the people, hey, you guys, you have sinned really big time. This is a really big deal. And so I'm going to go back up the mountain and perhaps I can make atonement for you. And so what we're going to read now is Moses' attempt to attain atonement through his own merits. And this is his conversation with God. Intercession number two. 
This is Moses. They've sinned greatly. Forgive them. If not, blot me out of your book. Take me out. If you, if you can't forgive them, then let me be the one that's killed instead. And the Lord responds, those who have sinned, they will be blotted out. Now go lead this people out of the land. My angel will come with you. And then God sends a plague. This is after there's already 3,000 dead. And now that brings us up to this passage that we just read, intercession number three out of five. Are you ready? Here's how it goes. God says, hey, go to the promised land, Moses. An angel will get with you. I'm not going to go. These people are too stubborn. But Moses said, "Um, you forgot to tell me who is going with me. You said you know us by name. We're special to you. We have your favor. And remember, this is your nation, not just mine. So God says, all right, my presence, it will go with you. And I'll give you rest. To which I have a question for you. Why does Moses request God's presence? What's the big deal with God's presence? Why does this even matter? And if it's not already obvious, maybe I'll give you two reasons. One would be context. This might not be easy to read. I'll try to make sense of it. This is a little uh, visual for the last chapters of Exodus. The theme of presence is rich in this passage. 19 God shows up, his presence shows up in fire. 20 through 23, he gives the Ten Commandments and more. Chapter 24, something interesting happens. There's a meal halfway up the mountain with Moses and the elders, and it's a sign that the covenant has been ratified. There's always a meal after the covenant. So God shows up, and they get some kind of view of God's greatness. And then look at all those instructions for the tabernacle. Look how much space, how much ink was given to scrolls, how much ink was given in your Bible for the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle was the place God had planned to meet with his people. He had met on the mountain with Moses. He had met halfway down for a meal. He had met outside of camp in a tent, but never had he met inside the camp with God's people. And so you can see God's presence. I've got the little cloud. You know, see the cloud there, the tabernacle. God's presence is a humongous theme in this section. But that's not the only reason I think it's important. The other reason is because Moses asked for God's presence because God omitted it from the list of things he would provide. It was shockingly absent. You could say God's like a chess player and he makes a move and he wants to see if Moses will notice something important. He wants to draw out the importance of presence. That's why God has this conversation with Moses. And so Moses starts interceding. He's like, hey, you forgot something. We got to go with you. You got to go with us. And so even for us today as readers of the Bible, we are supposed to see the importance of presence. I want you to put your thinking cap on here for a second. And I want you to think more deeply than just surface level of what we just read. I want you to meditate on this for a second. Think about the offer that God just gave to Moses. It was actually a rather kind of astounding offer. I will show it to you visually here with the scriptures. Uh, Depart, go up from here to the land. He's talking about the famous promised land, the land 
to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were promised this expansive, glorious land, a return to Eden, a great paradise land with God. So he's like, okay, I want you to go up to that promised land. What else is he going to do? Oh, and they don't have to fend for themselves on the way because they are going to have to face giants, and that's kind of hard to do if you're not very strong. So he's sending an angel, and he promises he's going to get them all the way there. Check. That's good. What else does he promise them? The land is flowing with milk and honey. So once you get there, you're going to experience the abundant blessing of Yahweh. It's just, I got you covered. You're going to taste that milk and honey. You're going to get those giant grapes. You're going to live the abundant good life. Sounds pretty good. Oh, and just one tiny thing in small writing at the end, um, and I'm not going with you, but you get all the rest. You get the promised land. You get power. You get blessing. I want you to think about your life for a second. I want you to think about this hypothetical offer. If you could have this, would you take it? And here's what it means in your life. If you could have the promise that anything that opposes you, even spiritually, even, you know, whether it's, um, you know, um, things that hold you back or you want to take ground for the kingdom of God or you want to grow more in Christ. You got all the power you need and also you've got the good, abundant life. You've got all the provision you need, happiness. Just wouldn't have God's presence. That's it. But you can have all the rest. Would you take that? Rhetorical question. You don't have to answer. I think that's kind of challenging. How many of us might be inclined in our sinful hearts to say, I want that. But God's not going to be there. Let's see how Moses responds. This is his response to this hypothetical thing in intercession number four. Moses says, no way. If your presence isn't going with us, don't send us. It's the sign of your favor. It makes us distinct. And Yahweh says, I'm going to do the thing that you asked. You found favor in my sight. I know you by name. And so Moses makes it clear. Land, power, blessing without God's presence is a no-go. He doesn't want it. If he could only have God's presence and he lost the rest, he would rather have that. He's just going to stick with God because he knows that God is the best. If this were likened to marriage, I said earlier, the covenant's like marriage. It would be like a couple that struggled with infidelity. They're trying to figure out what to do. And then maybe one spouse says, all right, here's, here's my plan. I'm going to give you the house. You get to keep the house. And I'm going to keep giving you uh, monthly income. But I'm not going to live here anymore because we're not in relationship anymore. And so Moses is saying, no, I love you more than I love your stuff. I want you. Even if I don't have the stuff, give me you, God. And God, God responds, all right. And so it looks like things are back on. So he says, all right, I'm going to be with you. You'll continue to be my treasured possession. You'll be the apple of my eye. You'll be my kingdom of priests that will show my greatness to all the nations. So all of them have a chance to know me. And so after these four intercessions, then Moses makes a bold request. This request is not an intercession. It's a bold request. So let's read some more scripture. 
And we'll pick up right where we left off in verse 18. Moses said to the Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. We'll skip down a few verses. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. Go to verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Why does Moses ask to see God's glory? I know that God's glory is good, but why now? Why after all these intercessions and why is he saying he wants to see God's glory? Two reasons. For one, Moses is the representative, the covenant representative of the people. And so to see God's glory would be a confirmation of the covenant God did this before. Remember when he was at Mount Sinai making the covenant, he showed up in glory. They had the meal halfway up the mountain, so his presence was a confirmation of the covenant. And furthermore, Moses brought two new tablets. Remember you broke the other ones. Could you get some new ones? We need to make some new ones. Moses brings it up, and these are a confirmation that the covenant is being renewed, the exact same covenant they're starting over again. So they were, the words can be again written in stone and um, with these same people. But that's not the only reason why, God asked, why Moses asked to see God's glory. I think the other reason is a personal reason. I think that Moses really, really loved God. I think he was amazed by God's presence and his glory, and he had tasted some of it, but there was more. He had seen him at the burning bush, in a way. He had met him at Mount Sinai. He had met him halfway up the mountain. He had met him outside the camp, but he knew there's more of God to know. And we kind of catch hints of this relational language. You remember he said this, that He got to speak to God in a deep way as a man speaks with a friend. And then you remember earlier, Moses said, show me your ways that I may know you. And so Moses is infatuated. He's amazed. He is um, 
totally satisfied with God, but he's hungry to know him more. And I don't know about you, but for me, as I've been studying this this last week, this is the part that's been convicting me. There is more of God still to get to know. God is not a topic to be mastered. None of us know him completely. There is infinite glory to God. There are infinite facets of his greatness still to be discovered. And so whether you've been following Jesus for a day or for many decades, there's still more of his glory to be known. And so how about you? Do you long to know more of God and his heart? Are you curious to go deeper to discover more of his greatness personally? I want to. I don't want to plateau in seeking God. Further up and further in, baby. Let's find more of God. He's amazing. So let's go back to the story. We're atop the mountain. Moses gets this encounter with God. And what's fascinating is the description Maybe what's absent and what's included. Moses has seen amazing things, but this time, surprisingly, even though we're seeing God's glory, we don't really get any descriptors of anything physically different than before. It's actually almost copy-paste the exact same words that show up in the last chapter. God showed up in a pillar of cloud and he stood with Moses and he spoke with him. Now, this was an important thing. I'm not downplaying this revelation of God. It's really important. But I'm, I'm just saying he didn't see like extra fire this time or there weren't extra natural disasters or there wasn't louder thunder this time. In fact, God kept Moses from seeing anything. He put his hand in front of him so he couldn't see the full greatness of his glory, of his face, as it were. But notice what is included Very interesting. The revelation of God's glory is seen in God proclaiming his heart, putting words to who he is and revealing to Moses more of his goodness, his greatness. It's his glory with these very famous words, which let's read them again. The Lord passed before him. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In the Old Testament, this scripture right here that I just read is the most quoted scripture within the Old Testament scriptures. The most quoted one otherwise is Psalm 110, and that shows up a ton in the New Testament. But if you take off the New Testament, the Old Testament authors found this scripture to be supremely important. It shows up 27 times in the Old Testament at all sorts of times in Israel's history, and most of the time after they had really blown it, after they had rebelled, and they needed to remember God's heart. So whether it's in Joel, Joel 2.13, or whether it's in the times of Nehemiah, or whether it's the next generation in Deuteronomy, or various Psalms, they all keep coming back to this. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious in some way, some part of that scripture. It's a very important revelation of God. 
And I want you to consider the importance of these words in its context. Picture yourself as Israel. You've got it. God's got a special plan for you. You've seen miraculous things. And then right when things are starting, you blow it. And it seems like things are off. And you know God is just. He's a jealous God. He's already killed people for the sin. But then look at how these words stand out in contrast to that or in context. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Oh, those words must sound amazing to people who have just blown it, who've just broken the covenant. The next words, let's see if these are highlighted. Yes, thank you. I'll go back one. It says that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's absolutely full of these character qualities, filled to the brim. And just for fun, we don't do much Hebrew. Might as well put this up. If you're going to know a Hebrew word, you might as well know this word. The first one for steadfast love, it's chesed. The first part, it's kind of like you have a little phlegm in the back of your throat. You got to clear it first and then say the word. So I want you to pray. It's like chesed. All right? Say it to your neighbor. Chesed. Very good. Yep. Yep. Gesundheit. God bless you. Chesed. This is a beautiful word. This is such a rich word. Obviously, it means steadfast love, but some other um, context to bring out the qualities of it. Um, undeserved favor. Um, covenant loyal love. Grace. Chesed grace. The next word, faithfulness. This is another rich Hebrew word, which can mean various things based on context, but it includes, obviously, faithfulness, as in like reliability or stability, or in some context, truth. It means each of those, but depending on the context. Isn't that good? He's full of the steadfast, gracious love, and he's the steady, faithful truth. He's full of those things. And then finally, maybe I'll highlight this last part, a, perhaps a, a tension or a, a mystery, I would say, in that it says he describes himself as being f- one who forgives iniquity, yet at the same time, he won't clear the guilty. We can see this tension of a forgiving yet just God just in the passage we just read where 3,000 were put to death And there was a plague that perhaps killed more. And yet at the same time, he's offering forgiveness to some some covenant breakers. It's astounding. How do those two mesh together? How can he be forgiving and yet not ignore justice which should occur? How can God be both merciful and just? And so we're going to leave that hanging But we're going to look at the last intercession that Moses makes after seeing this brilliant revelation of God in his heart. And this one I'll just summarize here. After all this, Moses says to God, all right, go with us, forgive us, take us as your special people. And it's interesting to note that Moses' three requests are actually the same three requests he made in in intercession number one, two, three, and four. 
just in reverse order because Hebrew authors like to mirror things and make chiasms. But here we go. He asked for those three things. Go with us. We need your presence. Forgive us and let us be your special people, your kingdom of priests, your treasured possession. And God confirms it. All right, the covenant is back on. Here's the tablets. Uh, it was broken, but now we're, we're definitely a thing again. And you can count on this. And then he promises that he's going to use this people to show his wonders. He's going to do miraculous things to them that will show all the nations that God is amazing and that they can know him. So what happens from this point? I'm going to go macro on you to the book of Exodus. How does what happens to the rest of the book of Exodus after this moment? Here's what it looks like in the text. Lots of chapters of tabernacle construction. You see how much instruction there was for building it? Now we get a lot of words about how they built it, and it took a long time. And then we get to the very last moment of Exodus, and we wonder, is God going to show up? He's been on top of the mountain. He's been halfway up the mountain. He's met outside of the camp with Moses, but will God actually be with his people, like a tent in the middle of camp, right by sinners? Is God going to do it? This is how Exodus ends. Yes, the very last part of Exodus God's glory cloud shows up right in the tabernacle, and now God's presence is indeed with his people. We talked the last couple weeks about the Old Testament law and the new covenant. How do they relate? And so I might as well ask the question, how does this passage relate to the cross and the new covenant? How are we supposed to apply this? It's a great story. Are we just supposed to be entertained by this story, or how should we take it? And so for that, I'm going to turn to John 1.14 to help us bridge between this and where we stand as people of the new covenant. You probably recognize this verse. It's part of the prologue in John chapter 1. Beautiful words. It says that the word, meaning Jesus Christ, became flesh and he dwelt among us and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Having just gone through Exodus 33 and 34, does anything stand out to you in this verse in John 1? It did to me. I'll show you the three things that stood out to me. First of all, the phrase dwelt among us. Think about that whole uh, desire for God's presence, the loss of his presence. Would he actually dwell with us in our midst, in the middle of the camp? Would God be here? So you remember that verse? That's in Exodus 25. It just says that God would dwell in the tabernacle. So whereas before God would dwell in the tent, he would indeed dwell in the tabernacle after sin. Now we see that Jesus dwelt with us. Same wording. He was willing not just to be in a tent, but he was willing to live among broken people like us. He pitched his tent in his body and came here in the glory of God. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. God showed up to live with us in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing I noticed, glory. Glory was an important word from Exodus. God said, show me your, or Moses said, show me your glory. But God said, hey, you can't see my face. I'm going to reveal my heart. I'll proclaim it, but you can't see me. But then the disciples said, hey, we've seen his glory. 
glorious as of the only uh, son from the father. And so when they see Jesus, when you and I see Jesus, we are seeing the glory of God. We're seeing the heart of God displayed. When you read in a gospel account in the Bible about the way that Jesus interacted with somebody who couldn't walk, or when he interacted with someone who is blind, or someone who had committed a gross sin, you're getting to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? Okay, one more. I love this. And finally, full of grace and truth. I showed you those cool words, right? Chesed. That was the first word. Yeah. So uh, this isn't just an accident that John happened to say the same words, grace and truth, that line up with the Hebrew and Greek words. He did this on purpose. He's trying to show, like, when you're seeing Jesus, I want you to remember Yahweh. There is a direct connection here. And so God's living with us in Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God, and he is himself abounding, full of hesed, full of grace, full of truth. And so this man, Jesus, then after he lived this life that displayed the glory of God, then took his life to the cross where he was a better mediator than Moses, a better intercessor, one who could actually obtain atonement. And there at the cross, we see mercy and justice meet. The mercy of God and the justice of God clearly displayed as justice was poured out, the wrath of God for sin on Jesus, as he's brutally killed, as he bore the wrath of God, but then the mercy of God in a surprising way where Jesus opens the way for all of us to have access to God's heart and to be pardoned of our covenant breaking and to get to know him. And so therefore this Verse is our reality for all of us who have been pardoned by Jesus. Because he was a high priest, he finished the work, he did more than the Levite priest could do. Now we can boldly, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, which is God's presence. We can go straight into God's presence, even after we've sinned. And what do we find there? Wrath. Should we go timidly? No. Mercy and grace to help us in every time of need that we face. And so in conclusion, new covenant, old covenant. In the new covenant, the access is provided for all pardoned sinners. But in the old covenant, it was just one Levite high priest who got to go into the tabernacle. But it's all of us. We don't have to watch from a distance as one man goes up. All of us get to go in. And the place, well, he's accessible anywhere. God is anywhere you are. He dwells in you as a temple. And so anywhere you go, God's presence is there. Compared to before, it was just the tabernacle. It was just, it's kind of like a bedroom size. It's just that small. When can you have it? 24-7, even on holidays. You can always access God's heart and his presence. Before, it was only one day. It was called Yom Kippur. And then um, what are the stipulations for coming into the presence? Before, there were so many strict things. If they didn't do it right, they might die. 
But there was blood. Things had to be cleansed. There were certain clothes you had to wear. There was incense to be burned. And now, just come. Jesus already prepared the way. You just blew it. Just come. Just come to Jesus. And finally, the way we come, we don't come timidly, worried that maybe we're going to die. Maybe God actually hates us. Because of Jesus, because of our trust in him, we come with confidence. We come boldly, knowing that we're accepted and that we're loved and that God's heart has been fully open to us. That's probably enough for today. How about band? Let's have you come up and let me wrap up with a concluding thought here. How should we respond to this? I don't know exactly. I'm sure the Holy Spirit has something for you. You just heard God's word. He's speaking to you. But maybe you could consider some of these things this week. Consider telling God, show me your glory. Jesus opened the way to God's heart for all of us. And so there's more of him to discover. There's more of his greatness to be enjoyed. And he is indeed the supreme enjoyment. Even if you had all those other things, a good life, abundant life, peace, power, land, if we didn't have him, you wouldn't be satisfied. And so let's dig in this week and crack open that Bible, look in a gospel, and see the glory of God in Jesus Christ and be amazed. Don't you love what he does? Aren't you amazed by the things he says? Or when you're praying, don't pray kind of bored. Lord, well, here we are coming into your presence again. Be amazed. Wow, God, I'm, I am in your presence right now. I am. I couldn't be any closer to you. Wow, I'm so glad I get to know you, God. When you've sinned, when you're blowing it, don't run away. Come to Jesus. Come discover his merciful heart. Remember, he's full of grace and truth. Jesus paid the way. Maybe you've never realized that this is the good news, not just that you can be forgiven, yes, that's awesome, but that you can have God's presence, that you can be that special to have his heart. This is the good news. And so I encourage you to, just, to lean into that or ask somebody about that if you haven't discovered that before. So let me conclude by praying and we'll use the next song to express our response to God's priceless presence. Jesus, show us your glory. We want to know you more. Show us your ways that we may know you. Thank you that we found favor in your sight. There is no one like you, God. You are truly amazing. And we have just swum, just been swimming in the baby pool when there are ocean depths of you to discover. Help us to discover more, help us to be satisfied more, and help us to go to your heart, to be grateful for your priceless presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.